0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network in Italian Studies. I'm your host, Kate Driscoll, Assistant Professor of Italian and Romance Studies at Duke University. It's my delight to be joined today by my dear colleague and friend, Professor Eugenio Raffini, Chair of Italian Studies at New York University. There are many words with which one could introduce you, Eugenio, but allow me to start with your exceptional research. Eugenio Raffini is a specialist of questions of reception, translation, and forms of adaptation explored through the intersections of rhetoric, poetics, drama, music, and voice studies. His first monograph, Vervia denotazioni*, published in 2009, looks at the Renaissance reception of Horace's art of poetry as a seminal moment in the making of early modern literary theory. His second book, The Vernacular Aristotle, Translation as Reception in Medieval and Renaissance Italy, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020, discusses the vernacular appropriation of Aristotle as a lens through which to reassess the place of translation within any process of reception. Similar questions inform his many publications on the reception of the sublime in rhetoric, poetics, and music. His third monograph and the subject of our conversation today is titled Staging the Soul, Allegorical Drama as Spiritual Practice in Baroque Italy, published by Legenda with the University of Oxford and the Modern Humanities Research Association in 2023. This book, as we will soon discuss, explores pedagogical uses of dramatic allegories in Italy around the year 1600, with a focus on the place of theater in the education of female orphans in the hospitals of Venice. A welcome. I'm so Happy to have you for this conversation today. Thank you for joining us.
2: Hello, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure and an honor to be part of this series and a delight to be talking about my book with you.
1: Lovely. So we should just jump right in. And um, I think we all want to know what the story is of how did we receive the book that we have um, printed hard copy in our hands today? Um, How did the idea for the volume emerge? And when did it reach you? How did it reach you in your research trajectory?
2: Oh, thank you. This is a very good question, because it allows me to go a little bit down memory lane. Um, And um, the origin of this book really goes back to my doctoral dissertation, which I um, defended in Pisa, the Scuola Normale Superiore, back in uh, 2010. Um, so uh, what happened there is that I was writing a dissertation on um, questions of allegorical drama in um, Italy around 1600. And um, uh, of course, as is often the case with doctoral dissertation works. I had plenty of ideas. Uh, I wasn't able to follow all the threads which I was hoping to follow at the time. Um, So the dissertation per se was completed. Uh, Then in my life, something happened in the sense that I uh, started a postdoctoral fellowship in the UK, working on a rather different topic, which brought me to the Aristotle book, which you kindly mentioned earlier. And so I left my dissertation work there, sort of on hold for a while. Of course, during the years, I did continue to think about it. I did continue to do some side research on the on the topic. And um, during the pandemic, when I was, you know, as we were, uh, as we all were, sort of stuck at home without really a chance to do new research, I thought it would be a good moment to go back to my folders on allegorical drama around 1600 um, and see whether I was really sort of ready for bringing that project to completion in terms of transforming that original uh, text into into dissertation. So the final result is very different from the dissertation, uh, and there are several uh, chunks of the book which weren't part of the of the dissertation, uh, particularly the detailed analysis of the plays, we might go back to that um, later, uh, which occupies the final chapter of the book. So uh, it's been a long story, um, and um, really I think the moment when I decided it was time to go back to it beyond the circumstances of COVID was uh, some new findings I had a chance to uh, um make really almost by accident when I was in Venice at the Biblioteca Marchana doing research on a different project. So, you know, that's how our job tends to develop, right? O- quite often in unexpected ways. Uh, and this was, I think, around uh, um, 2018, 2019. So I was still working on my previous book, and yet I was kind of finding ways to, uh, you know, make the most of other research uh, endeavors as well. And so I slowly got back into the staging the soul project.
1: That's wonderful. I I love that the story of of the all the different roots that brought you back to the work, um, and then how it becomes renewed again over time. I feel like that fits in so well with what you pursue in the book about these the use of this literature as it uh, occasions different types of reading at different periods. So, um, that question, or, or your 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 answer to that question, brings me to to ask you to just explain a little bit then how these kind of key terms that evolve in the book uh, between allegory, image making and personification and the kinds of traditions and currents that follow them and that give these meaning shape over time. Like How was it that this became the corpus to, to rely on as, as the book was developing? Um, could you share how it came to pass that the these were the terms that started to take kind of center stage in the book and um, where you saw the potential to draw out a performative reading of them that brings us to think about allegory, image-making, personifications in new ways from how they had been read.
2: Right. Well, this is another excellent question. Thank you, Kate. Um, Well, I mean, I think that the main point, again, is thinking about the original core of the question I was asking. It all began with my interest in thinking about the rhetorical figure of the personification or prosopopoeia as an interesting uh, literary device, where uh, writing so words get together inevitably with images. And, uh, you know, personification is the idea of giving a body and a voice possibly to uh, something which is abstract, right? Um, And uh, uh, this was the original really question I was interested in. And uh, um, the following step was to imagine a situation where these personifications get to be characters in uh, dramatic plays um and uh, so i thought i would try to take literally the personification device as uh, as a process through which an abstract entity uh, or even a concept get to be given a body and a voice and of course the the stage uh, seems to be the ideal space for this kind of experiment um and so uh, the initial idea of thinking about the history of the figure personification, uh, combined with the idea of seeing what happened in the early modern period when these personifications got to be used in drama. Um, and the further step was to finding out that actually, particularly in the context of spiritual drama, uh, personifications were extremely abundant in the decades around 1600. Um, and uh, the theoretical framework, uh, the performative framework, uh, if I can call it that way, really is the final step, if you will, in the sense that after several years working on this project, I eventually got to the point where I sort of thought, OK, I need to sort of uh, wrap things up and bring all these bits and pieces together. And uh, um, I really, again, try to think about performance as the space where performative things happen. and. I thought about taking literally even this notion, right? The idea that um, when something is given a body and a voice on stage, uh, they are indeed performing uh, in the double sense of, you know, performative when we think about linguistics and the sense of performative as related to performance. And so it, this has been the sort of uh, sequence of steps which brought me from the initial idea to the framework of performance and Performative, which eventually constitutes the uh, the frame of the work.
1: Right, right, exactly. And so, so much of that then um, really depends on these abstractions being presented on stage, but then being presented in dialogue with one another, um, as you as you call them, these these dangerous co-protagonists who are up against man in trying to make sense of not only life but especially death. And the the next question I want to ask then is that how all of this develops um, in Baroque. Italy, and I want us just to linger on the first, on the kind of qualifier of that, right? An Italy that is Baroque, and and a term that comes with a substantial degree of of materials and 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 things that are in archives that have been overlooked, in part because of the connotations and the meetings, even baggage, that Baroque has 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 had to schlep around now for a little bit. And um, so, when we think about the Baroque, we encounter this puzzle whereby the it's It's difficult in the way that Baroque has been labeled, let's say, to see where morality would surface in a period that gets labeled for being excessive and and um uh, a, a bad taste that there's that there's this general lack of gravitas and moral discipline. And yet you bring us to this um rich, repertoire of works in which these are these are the very questions um, that that they're after. And so having worked, I know in your in in your research in the in the broken sort of all of its different capacities, do you did you have an early interest in this period's pedagogies? because that's again, one of these one of these dominant threads in the book is the interest in in how do you make pedagogical sense of these texts in the way that they were originally designed or you know surfaced in different periods later on? Um, and and if you did have that early interest in the Brookes pedagogies or pedagogical models, was this something that you felt you got to explore in new ways? Precisely because, as you just explained, you arrived at them with an interest really in that double use of performative, and it's and it's what, what the performative um, rhetorical linguistic possibilities when we look at texts through that lens, or the performative precisely because these were stage productions.
2: Wow. Uh, That is another fantastic um, set of things to think about. Um, Thank you, Kate. Um, The short answer is yes, in a way, in the sense that uh, the pedagogical dimension of the literature I'm exploring in the book has always been there. Maybe not as a primary concern as of the beginning, but of course it was there. Um, what wasn't there at the beginning was the Baroque focus. And that's maybe an interesting story to tell, and I'll try to be as as brief as possible, Um, because, of course, the idea of including Baroque in the title of the book uh, came at the end of the project, so to speak. Um, And I didn't sort of take that decision lightly, and I'm not even 100% sure that I'm totally happy with it in a way, because of course, I'm very interested in Baroque culture. And I think that there are so many interesting aspects of Baroque culture, which need desperately to be reassessed. And this applies to the intersections of literature and the arts, literature and visual culture, literature and the performing arts, so on and so forth. Uh, But there's also a problem with the term. As you were saying, the term Baroque comes with a heavy baggage. Um, And, uh, you know, there are champions of the Baroque as well as people who have been always more dismissive. Um, Now, my interest interest in using the term Baroque was really a way at the end of this process to try to highlight something peculiar about the kind of works I was exploring in this uh, this project. And uh, particularly when it comes to the analysis of the plays, which I do in the second part of the book, uh, I think that the label Baroque, with all its problems and issues, even at the level of historiography, remains particularly productive, um, because it captures the um, sort of irregular nature of these works, um, who are, which are, uh, at the very same time, extremely canonical, because these are, you know, five-act plays. Uh, more or less modeled according to the standards of classical theater. And yet within them, we find all sorts of things which classical or classicist theater didn't want to have in a play. Um, And the particular figure around whom I sort of build my narrative in the second part of the book, Fabio Glicenti, on whom we might uh, uh, say something more later, is really, I think, the embodiment of these various tensions at work um, in the early 17th century. Um, and so in the end, I thought that even if Baroque comes with its issues, it was a good label to at least signpost the direction um, which these works were, were taking. Um, and the pedagogical uh, dimension of this story, to go back to the previous part of your question, um, was really uh, crucial to allow me to frame the narrative, because um, all these works really are concerned with some sort of uh, pedagogy, Uh, be it spiritual, be it individual, be it collective. Uh, And the dramatic context, the the stage, or even the individual reading of a play, which is in principle meant to be staged, uh, really become a space for pedagogical experiences which border spiritual experiences. Uh, And so that's the kind of further connection uh, when we uh, talk about pedagogy within this context.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda.
1: what would you like the power to do mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices message and data rates may apply bank of america and a member FDSE. that's great that that's uh, that's wonderfully helpful and um and i think having mentioned fabio glicenti in that answer it sets us up wonderfully um to to reveal more about this name which will probably sound fairly new to i imagine most people who are interested in new books in in italian studies um and then even those of us who have who have phd's in this field and so um what's what's wonderful about someone about the glissanti and i'd like to hear you your thoughts about this is that he seems so relevant to the way that our field is changing and making more space for this dialogue between medical environmental um literary and dramatic sides of the humanities and so we have this this physician of the body who emerges in your book as this great doctor of the soul and giving different models of of I don't know if we can call it self-care, um, but but it's a great it, it's a great way to think about the 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 dynamism of of books that aren't destined for, let's say, one type of reader or one discipline, um, one kind of disciplinary approach to a book. And so if we can hear more about Glicenti and, and what you make of of this opportunity that the Baroque gives us to have a physician. Who is also interested in in describing for audiences and readers who might engage with text at the meditation meditative level, um, a, a way to think about the art of dying well, and if that constitutes a form of, of self care?
2: Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, let me try to cover uh, at least a few um, of these aspects. So Glicenti, um, just you know, sort of to contest- to contextualize a little bit, is this. Um, uh, um, physician, uh, so a doctor based in Venice. He was born near Brescia, uh, living really in Venice um, uh, around 1600, um, and working for the local ospedale. So, you know, he was a professional in the field of medicine, um, trained as a natural philosopher in Padua. Um, So he was really sort of, you know, ticking all the boxes of the natural philosopher kind of figure um, in those those decades. Uh, But clearly also interested in the philosophical dimension of his work more broadly, which brought him to write a number of works, um, which then ended up being my main case study in the book. Now, the reason why I picked this particular case study is probably worth um, reviewing briefly, um, because, of course, this is not a major figure um in uh, uh in the history of italian literature uh not even in scholarship there's a very good uh, monograph by george McClure on uh glicenti who really tackles the more sort of uh, historical and socio-historical dimension of his work um but there's not much beyond beyond that uh, so it's not a well known figure uh, but i found uh his works, um, which were printed in in uh, in Venice in the early 17th century, uh, during the kind of you know review of bibliography which every um, doctoral student uh, has to do when working on their dissertation. And my very ambitious project, of course, at the beginning of um, my uh, dissertation writing, was to imagine a sort of you know I thought it about a as an exhaustive uh, sort of list of uh, spiritual dramas um, around 1600. Uh, using allegorical personifications. And of course, the number of works was really too uh, too big to handle in a dissertation, and I really needed to narrow down my focus. And uh, uh, while doing research at the British Library in London um, over, I think it was the summer of 2009... Um, I ended up really bumping into the works of this guy, Fabio Glicenti. There were some 12 uh, plays published uh, between 1606 and 1612. Um, and then I found out that he was also the author of a very substantial, massive book on the art of dying well, an Ars Moriendi, um, which was sort of complementary to the kind of work he did in the plays. So uh, I sort of identified a kind of a cluster of works around the figure of this interesting um, doctor. uh, And I thought, let's give it a try. Let's try to make sense of what's happening here. Uh, And so that's how I ended up really deciding to have this strong focus uh, on him. And then, as I mentioned earlier, over the years, going back to Venice to do research on other things, uh, I ended up finding... um, uh, materials in the Marchana, uh, which I uh, hadn't found before, um, including um, manuscript materials which weren't part of the sort of uh, previous scholarship on this topic, um, which really sort of helped me go back to glicenti and give the entire narrative uh, a tighter um, a tighter um, structure. Um, but just to go back to uh, your other point about the intricacy, of these various threads uh, yes the answer is yes in terms of uh, combining the medical dimension of what he did the environmental dimension of what he did because he has this very strong focus on combining the experience of the individual with the space surrounding them um, and the body versus soul kind of dynamic uh, these various topics are part of his Um, experiment uh, as an author in ways which are not canonical. Uh, And that brings us back to the question of what is irregular about uh, Baroque literature, particularly at this historical juncture.
1: That's great. And I I think what was lovely to hear in that answer, too, is that there's so many mysteries that await us, whether they're in the Marchana in Venice or in the the British Library, but in um, so many places, just because of the bibliographical tradition that has not Always followed um these figures, but um how could we make Baroque, Baroque figures less Baroque in a way? Um that kind of came to me as a, as a thought. So because now we're we've entered Glicenti territory and we could talk about, let's say, first his discorsi Morali, his moral discourses before we talk about the morality plays per se. Um, I'm curious if we could hear the story of the book's cover image and this beautiful woodcut of a female figure contemplating um, death and and in, in a solitary space. And as you said, as you just explained to us in your answer, space really gives so much definition to what Glicenti's textual goal is, and then how that goal gets translated via images kind of brings us back to what you were saying just a few minutes ago. And so um, when you were working in Venice, you were looking at this text, and you, you were surprised by them. At what point did you know that that was the image that was going to speak to you um, in a, in kind of a profound way. And then how did that become the image that you ended up selecting for the cover of the book?
2: Um, thank you, Kate. I mean, this is another very good point, because I would say that that image, um, which the sort of listeners can uh, check out online uh, if they look for the cover of the book, um, uh, is a very uh, important one to my own research. And I think fairly early in the process, I knew that that image would play an important role um, even before thinking really about the cover of the of the book. Uh, and then when uh, I was working with the press about, you know, the external features of the book, I thought you know that's the good image. As you were saying, we have in this image it's a woodcut with a woman in a kind of melancholic pose uh, meditating on death. There's a skeleton basically, there's a corpse um, uh, and uh, um, all this happen in a, um, happens in a sort of closeted space, uh, which could be a room, a bedroom. It's not very clear what kind of space is that, but it's it's a it's a very sort of intimate space, if you will. But at the very same time, it reads as a theatrical space because it's a very precise perspective, uh, pr- perspective space. Um, and you can imagine it really as um a locus, right? Um, um and uh, uh, I think this image captures the main threads I have been dealing with in this project, the meditative spiritual dimension of the materials I was working with, um, the spatial dimension um, of the meditation process, and the theatrical uh, metaphor, uh, which constantly comes up throughout the works uh, I've been been working on. Uh, This particular woodcut comes from the Discorsi Morali uh, by Glicenti, which is a Five day dialogue on the art of dying well and ars moriendi, as we said earlier, um, which is an itinerant dialogue where the two protagonists of the dialogue, a philosopher and a courtier, walk throughout the space of Venice. And, uh, you know, this is a five day um, dialogue which is presented in the preface by the author as. A kind of a theatrical representation. Uh, he is very explicit in saying that these five days function like the five acts of a play, um, and they are really conducive to allowing the reader of the text to meditate on things, uh, particularly spiritual things, including death. Uh, and so going back to the image, that particular woodcut which comes up in the book uh, alongside many more woodcuts, um, I thought it was uh, particularly striking and extremely sort of, uh, um, sort of uh, able to summarize the main issues at stake here. I should also add that this particular book is extremely rich in images it's one of the most interesting um, illustrated books published in Venice at the very end of the 16th century, 1596. Um, and the woodcuts are clearly part of the text. So once again, we go back to the question of combining the word with the visual, um, something which Glicenti was clearly very invested um, into.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and, and just as you were speaking too, I couldn't help but review the woodcut when you described it as a theater and this locus where things happen and also the kind of framing on either side of the image when uh when readers are going go google um professor Ruffini's book here um we'll see these, these kind of curtains that the that cur- curtains are almost made out of skeletons and this brings us back to what you describe as as the moral dissections that we read in the morality plays, where man is up against um, things that were interior that are now made exterior, and and the dissecting of, of different parts of uh, man's spirit, then here in the image get dissected as, as man's kind of physical construction, framing this moment of of reflection on death itself. Um, and so I, I was I was happy to hear. Or to note um, that the female figure, of course, functions as is the portal, the 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 window into the book. And I want to know, um, you know, how does she relate to the kinds of female orphans who really engage then with his spiritual plays? And when we think about women's performance in this period, obviously there's so many different types of group that we could gravitate to, whether the actresses um, that are debated about in the Discorsi Morali or the um the kind of birth of the professional actress in this period but then also you know convent drama is so widespread and almost that that's sort of where we go when we think about well what's drama in other types of maybe more um sacred spaces kind of closed spaces that are interested in the in the tra- trajectories of the spirit um we seem to know so much more about that than we do about the morality plays as they were played out in venice and so um can you tell us about just the you know what's your what's your sense about why we know so much more about convent plays? And then what would the investment, let's say, of these female orphans be in in, in joining together with their fellow girls and, and experiencing these plays um
2: as a group? So this really raises a very important um question, which is particularly um Relevant for the context of Venice, right? Because um, as you were saying, in this particular uh, moment in the history of European drama and particularly Italian theater, um, we have the emergence of professional theater with the actresses, you know, the sort of Isabella Andreini kind of kind of type. Uh, but we also have the tradition of convent uh, drama, um, which of course has been extremely important to me in terms of looking at previous scholarship incognate particularly the work of Elisa Weaver has been extremely crucial to sort of allowing me to set the field for my own work um, on the spiritual plays of of the Ospedali. Now what is peculiar about the case I've been working on and which is you know partly different from what happens with convent theater is that the plays which Glicenti composed they were really meant to be performed within the Ospedale of Venice by the Orphan girls, as you were saying, the so-called hutte who uh, lived there, or or at least who got their education there. Um, One of the specific features of the ospedali, the hospitals in Venice, is that they functioned also as orphanages. Um, And, you know, people who don't work on this kind of topics might sort of uh, forget about this particular dimension. And as orphanages, they would be running all sorts of activities, including pedagogical activities. And Glicenti, who was a doctor in the Venetian ospedali, was clearly also interested in joining the pedagogical uh, scope of the institutions. And so he wrote these plays uh, for the female orphans, and particularly for that moment in the year, which coincided with Carnival, which again again brings us back to the question of tensions and conflicts in Baroque culture, particularly in Venice at the time. Uh, So we can imagine a situation where outside in the streets, uh, carnival is kind of, you know, in full bloom, and the ospedali are proposing within the walls of the ospedali themselves a different kind of drama, an alternative to the secular drama out there, which is spiritual, which is pedagogical, and which is meant to train those orphan girls as good Christians. So we are, of course, within the borders of um, uh, radical orthodoxy, if you will, in terms of religious Thinking and religious doctrine. Um, But at the same time, these plays were meant to be offered to an audience, uh, an audience of people who were allowed into the hospitals and who would be, uh, you know, um, giving gifts to the hospital. Uh, They weren't paying tickets, of course, but they were, you know, donating to the hospitals. Um, And we do know through a series of documents, that that process was particularly successful. Um, and uh, so this is the kind of context where we might want to situate the particular commitment of Samuel Lai to this uh, dramatic uh, theatrical uh, endeavour. And the orphan girls do play a crucial role because it's through their bodies and through their voices which these plays were first staged. Um, Then there's a second part of the story, which is what happens to the plays once they get printed. And that brings us to the question of accessing drama through reading, meditative reading, uh, which, of course, at that point goes beyond the boundaries of the hospital. Um, And just to close on the comparison with convent drama, quite clearly there are similarities, because we are talking about... um, um, homosocial dimensions uh, in terms of um, structures. Uh, we have a body of actors, actresses, who is entirely female in this case, um, and uh, we have a very strong religious slash spiritual component. Uh, yet the situation of the orphan girls was not exactly the same as that of the um, nuns in convents for obvious reasons. So there are some similarities, but also some social Uh, differences which are important to um, consider. Uh, In a way, the fate of these two different bodies of people were different because on the one hand, nuns were supposed to spend the rest of their lives in the convent, whereas most of the orphan girls were meant to end up at some point in the real world out there. And so one of the functions of this place was to prepare them to be good Christians out there in the secular world
1: that's wonderful it it, may, it just is so tantalizing to 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 wish that we were back in then 1600 venice at one of these ospedali paying or gifting something to be able to to just catch this um experience and and every time that we that we've said um the word pedagogy you know i i, I can't help but ask having written a book now on pedagogy and having and having studied Uh, an instructor who is interested not only, as you're saying, in the girls' experience at the orphanage where they would have their learning, but then, um, you know, what that means for that experience at that time, and then how that acts as training for life later on, and then also how that acts or how that can be transformed into a book for meditative reading that could reach other audiences later down the road. Um, all of that investment in pedagogy, it, 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 it makes me want to ask a question about the sort of other side of things that we do in the academic life. Um, we engage so much with students and we... we we're invested in the in their lives as they're with us in semesters, studying these texts um, and curious about how it might impact them later on in life. You know, one of these things that we'll say is, you know, you'll find yourself 10 years from now, uh, something from this te- from this class might come back to you, and you might say, aha, that's why Odysseus decided to travel, right? Um, and those those moments are are really special and they do co- and they do connect with students. So, how has writing this book made you think about um your role inside the classroom and maybe even your role in talking with students about books or how you see the pedagogical value of books and just just has have there been moments you know maybe post-production knowing how busy production can be in these post-production reflections have there been kind of halo moments where you kind of thought about thought about
2: this Um, Yes, indeed. Uh, Actually, many moments of that kind. Uh, And I can maybe tackle this question in a very kind of practical way, in the sense that, of course, writing about, uh, you know, these orphan girls who were, in a way, students within their kind of, you know, pedagogical context um, and writing about them as someone who is not just a researcher, but also um, a, a professor, an instructor, I found myself several times thinking about, you know, what's the difference between our classroom and what was happening, say, in Venice in 1606 uh, in the Ospedale degli Incurabili. Uh, and uh, um, the answer there is that, of course, you know, we have a huge amount of differences. Um, but one particular thing uh, which came out of my writing the book in terms of thinking about pedagogy is, again, the question of um, how powerful the performative discourse can be. Um, and uh, uh, of course, you know, the easiest way to rethink about these in the context of our classrooms today would be, you know, let's have the students play with these texts or texts of this kind uh, in a Uh, properly dramatic theatrical way. And that's a possibility, which, of course, comes up all the time whenever we work with drama. And of course, I happen to be teaching drama-related stuff quite often, so this kind of thing uh, comes up all all the time. Here at NYU, I have many students who take my classes, and they come from Tisch, and many of them do drama, and several of them uh, come up with the idea of doing uh, performances in class. And that's a great addition to what I normally do. But another way to think about pedagogy in the context of my writing of this particular book has really to do with what you were saying, um, that is books. You now, what is the relevance of books as material objects in today's classroom? In classrooms where uh, we don't see many books at this point, because most of our students, you know, you know they seldom uh, buy books. They get ebooks if needed. Uh, they get PDFs of things to read. Um, but I still like to bring books in my classroom and uh, uh, I can possibly answer this question with one practical example. I'm preparing for my teaching this coming semester. Uh, I'm going to teach a first year seminar on on poetry. And uh, uh, one of the assignments uh, of the semester will be a thorough close reading of Virginia Woolf's Orlando. Uh, I got the most recent Penguin edition of... Uh, um, Orlando because I needed to find, you know, an easily available, accessible edition for the students. And I just found out that in this particular recent edition, uh, they have taken away all the images which are in the original text. I mean, as many of you know, Orlando by Virginia Woolf has a set of a few images, mostly portraits of Orlando during her or his transformations across the ages. And those images are particularly important, right? They are part of the text. Uh, Now, taking those images out of the text means doing, you know, uh, uh, means altering dramatically what the text is about. And so I think I will use, for instance, this specific example to show the students how the relationship between images and words uh, is much more than just decorative. Um, In several important cases, images are indeed part of the text and uh, uh, teaching them that is the students, how to navigate this combination of words and images is really one of the things which I find more um, productive, uh, no matter what the text uh, is really about. Um, So I hope that the practical example sort of uh, answers uh, the question better than, you know, uh, sort of uh, more general thoughts.
1: No, I mean, they're, they're experiences, right? And that's that's so fundamental to what the book is about. It's about the actual experience of of, of implementing this in real time. And I can um, contribute with a sort of counter example or a complementary example. Um, I have just started at Duke a course, Race and Power in the Renaissance World, which is also a first year seminar. And in today's class, we were interested in book covers to books about the Renaissance and what do you think you would get out of this book given this image? What do you think you get out of this book you know, given this image? And then you look at titles, right? And all the things that make books what they are, especially when we study this historical period, are the things then that determine how... Students are introduced to these materials so often for the very first time, so that's a little bit of a tragedy um, on Penguin's part because of you know with with Wolf's great text. So, um, but it's but it's useful then for students to know about that, right? So the things they inherit now are not the things that have always been. Um, the The last kind of big question uh, brings us to the conclusion of the book, and this just fascinating and really extraordinary experiment that uh, Luca Ranconi, the director, um, who I know for his very experimental work with with Ludovic uh, Ariostos, um, Orlando Furioso, um, he did this experiment in 1987, as you write, with his students at Rome's Academia Nazionale d'Arte Dramatica, and they staged a double bill of Baroque plays, so sort of, you know, the, the, the Baroque on steroids that evening, Um where one play was by Giovanni Battista Andrini. You mentioned Isabella Andrini, so this is uh, the great diva's son. And then the other play is one of the examples by Grisanti. And when you're writing about Arranconi, you bring out the director's concern precisely for his students' education and kind of his frustration as a director uh, in wanting to see their own concern about their role as humans in the life and you know kind of how do, how do you go about being an actor and a student and a citizen in the universe um and and what Ranconi thought about that um so so it's a beautiful way i thought to to wrap up the long life of glicenti's text and how he can return to us today um so the first part of this question is is how did you come across that um this this double bill and the second one is what would you could you imagine Glissanti's morality play one of them being put on today? Um, could you imagine you know a kind of an, an, another version of this 1987 experiment as um, either a double bill or just you know Glicenti headlining <laughs> um, on his own? Uh, what 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 your thoughts are? Is are, are we are we ready for for Glissanti comeback?
2: Right. Well, I think we definitely are, and uh, um, you know I think that uh, both sides of the questions are extremely interesting. Um, uh, I will begin from the Ronconi uh, part of it. I think I sort of bumped into that particular example of, of sort of unearthing uh, the Glicenti play at uh, the Accademia Nazionale di Arte Drammatica randomly. And, you know, I mean, you know, we always tell our students that uh, we have to search for information in rigorous ways. And of course, I'm a big fan of doing things in rigorous ways. But, you know, Google uh, is always, uh, you know, a goldmine of information, which, of course, then need to be double checked, even triple checked. Uh, but I think I really bumped into these um, information on uh, um, Glicenti's play La Morte Innamorata, Death in Love, uh, being performed in Rome, really by chance, kind of just doing some uh, word search um, online and then of course I began to look into that particular example li- a little more and that's when I found that um, the play was given sort of side by side with um, uh, um, Giovan Battista Andreini uh, Amor nello specchio so I thought this is a fantastic example of how you know sort of um, uh, two-faced uh, the Baroque is because L- L- La Morte Innamorata is a play about spiritual meditation is a play about It's basically a sacred drama, um, on the, you know, sort of constant fight between soul and body, between, um, uh, death and, uh, well, spiritual death and damnation, um, and all this kind of, you know, very spiritually religious, um, loaded, uh, um, uh tropes. Um, and then on the other side, Amor nello specchio is the other face of the Baroque, right? I mean, It's all about sensual love. Of course, it's done in a very sophisticated and complex uh, ways. It's a very uh, interesting play, per se, but very different from uh, Glicentes. So I think I play with the idea of these two facets of the Baroque in the conclusion of the book, really, to show how, even if very different from one another, Uh, these experiences uh, do clash and do produce meaning. And, you know, my understanding is that Ronconi at the time did think the same. And what is interesting there is that he thought about these two plays as a possible way for the young actors and actresses to really um, sort of um, train themselves as actors, as performers, with texts that do not deal with characters in the more traditional sense, uh, more modern sense, uh, which we normally give to the term character, right. So I think going back to the early modernity um, phase of tree of, of, of theater to rethink what drama and theater more broadly um, is is about. Now are we ready to repeat that kind of experiment today? I would say that, If we do it in the right way, yes, these are long plays, which means that they need to be shortened a bit. They also need to be translated in case we want to do them with, uh, let's say, Anglophone um, students. But there's much potential in there. There are very funny moments in them. Um, There are moments uh, where, you know, you have big group scenes monologues, there's everything in there. And you can imagine, I always like to think about these um, dramas made, produced in the Ospedali, a little bit like, you know, the high school musicals uh, in our own uh, time, when you need to find a little uh, role for old students, right? Um, And uh, if you look at the dramas by Glicenti, that's exactly the case you have even 30 35 characters uh, all together uh, and each of them have small parts so you can I think really sort of see that kind of uh, combination of pedagogy and uh, and performance um so the answer the brief answer is yes um as long as we find of course the right way to repackage um, these complex works um, into um, a more palatable, a source for both modern performers and modern audiences.
1: Sure, sure. I mean, it's it. It sounds like there's a great potential, not least with all those characters, um, and the opportunities then to to reveal all of the ways that Grisenti imagined the moral dissection of of man and all of our layers and complexities. That it's not, um, you know, that, that we just have interior demons or the psyche or passion or free will, right? But all of the layers and and you include throughout the the book, the the character lists, and they're quite long. So, so yeah. just even just spending time sort of just <laughs> meditating on those uh, is its own pedagogical invitation, right, to reflect on ourselves. And, you know, if I can add just kind of a
2: footnote, one particular aspect which I think would be extremely interesting to explore in modern performances is that, as I said, these plays, which of course feature both male and female characters, even if they're all allegorical personifications, they were meant to be uh, performed by an all female cast of actors, right? So I think uh, the question of gender confusion, for instance, comes up all the time. So you see another element of tension there because on the one hand, these plays are extremely uh, orthodox, extremely canonical in terms of Christian doctrine. uh, And yet when you bring them on stage, they inevitably bring up questions of um tension and confusion, which, for instance, um deal with the question of uh who's performing which role and what kind of um gender labels can be attributed to these specific um uh, to these specific uh, roles. so that's another aspect which I think might make this kind of materials palatable for our current rethinking of categories such as those of gender. As performance and gender in performance,
1: definitely. I mean, who 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 doesn't love transgressive orthodoxy? I mean, I I love the the opportunity that all of that um, gives us. So, um, Jen, if we could just round out this wonderful conversation, it's just been so so marvelous. Um, uh, asking you what comes next, I can never get enough of of the research of of hearing what goes on in your mind. Um, and so what are you what are you cooking up? With your current research, what what is next on the horizon, horizon for you?
2: Right. Um, so uh, let's say that the biggest the biggest project I'm working on. I'm trying to wrap things up with a, with another book, um, which um, deals with the reception of the trope of the lament um, in uh, Baroque uh, poetry and music. Um, really revolving around the figure of Ariadne, uh, abandoned by Theseus, and the idea is to sort of uh, cherry pick a few examples, uh, beginning, of course, with uh, uh, you know post Monteverdi kind of rediscovery of 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 of, of, of Ariadne um, in the 17th century, and think about what happens when the lament um, is given. Um, a bunch of new shapes through performance. So I'm really trying to continue my own reflection on performance and the performative as um, a space conducive to experimentation across poetry and music in this case, um, and the broader reflection, which I've been working on for a few years now on questions of reception. So that would be kind of combining really my um, performative hat Um, with the reception hat and let's see where things will go with that
1: that sounds great well I can't wait for developments on that front and of course um, for for the exciting number of readers that are now going to flock to staging the soul allegorical drama as spiritual practice in Baroque Italy thank you so much and it's been just such a pleasure chatting with you about your book congratulations again
2: thank you Kate my pleasure thanks very much